As we talked about in our last episode, so many families impacted by incarceration are dealing with different systems. When they interact with these systems, what are the conversations typically about? They're about needs, issues, problems. To oversimplify, it's about things that aren't going well in the family. Families come prepared to have that conversation. That's a familiar conversation they have when they come to seek resources. In a mentoring relationship, the conversation begins with an introduction meeting with the child, the family, the mentor, and the program staff. It's a really important moment in this relationship. They know about one another, but this is the first time they're actually meeting face-to-face. What if this first time a mentor and a child and their family meet, the whole conversation starts with things going well? We wondered what would happen if the first time a mentor and a child and a family met, the conversation started this way, with the possibilities, with the strengths of the child, what the parent appreciates about who they are as a person. Imagine how the nature of relationship changes when you start the conversation there. We talked with Abdi. Abdi shared with us a little bit about what this felt like with his program. got to do a little bit of modeling along the way as to to what it looks like to have these kind of conversations. Yes, yes. Was it ever hard for the parents to kind of join you in this strength-based approach? And uh, not not really. Uh, And once they get, you know, like, and how and the mentoring and, you know, is going and what what we are focusing on, uh, it, 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 no, and it it, it did not, in, in in the beginning, might have, you know, like, and, and you know, for them to look, you know, their parenting skills in a different way. But then when they see that, it's really, you know, like it's like education, I should say, for them as well. You know, say okay, so maybe this is and working. So they come along very well, and then it even breaks down for the mentor and mentee that you know, and 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 nine, most of the time. And during my experience, the parents really want good thing for their kids. So when they see that, you know, like it's helping them too. So, you know, it it, it they come uh, they come they come in a positive way. Uh, and what was it? Because I I definitely agree. I think for me, the five C's. Um, and when we talk about the five C's, we're talking about competence and confidence and character and connection and caring. Um, why was it that those five C's those key tenets of positive youth development. Uh, why why did that resonate so much for you and, and for your work? And because it's really and and combining is it's like and it's it it it's like covering everything that the kids you know in in entails if if all those areas are covered and then it completes the the you know the the connection. Uh, as a whole, so you know, as as and, and the, the kids touch, and, and it helps to enhance his his, you know, his his wholeness, or her wholeness. Yeah, that's so great. That that wholeness, I think, is so much of of what we 
are looking for and what we're trying to do through mentoring. Uh, and, and it is just such a beautiful juxtaposition to so often we end up talking about people as, as broken or, or that things are missing in their lives. Uh, but that that's not true, that really all of these pieces are here to make them whole. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we get to, to be a part of that and, and mentors have a chance to kind of help them explore those pieces that mm-hmm. make them whole. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's true. You probably heard it in Abdi's voice, and I guarantee you that you're going to hear it again. But there was such an inherent regard for the youth and the families that he was working with, and we saw it throughout the project. In each of the 20 programs we worked with, it wasn't that much of a stretch. It was more about the nuance, the intentionality, and the strategies behind the approach that brought about that regard. We talked with Maggie about this intentional approach. So when I came in as a match specialist, that was my original job role and title. Um, we, you know, had about 20 matches and I really didn't know much of what I was doing. I just was kind of put in that role and, um, and I was excited. I've always been excited about what it means to mentor young people in the community and what it means to just try to just be a loving and positive adult with kids who are maybe walking through some difficult things. And so I didn't really know, I didn't know what the elements of effective practice were and I didn't really know any other just good best practices and what it meant to match kids. I just knew that I wanted to engage with adults in the community and I wanted to work with kids. Um, And so I kind of, a lot of it was just kind of trial by fire. Um, But overall, ever since we've always talked about our approach as being asset-based. So definitely in theory, that is something we talk about a lot. That's something we talk about how we don't want to be, we don't want to come from a deficit-based approach. Um, But we really want to think about what does it mean to, to just really work from the assets. And it took me, I think, probably a few years to understand, understand what that really meant. And that was kind of one of those buzzwords that we would use a lot in staff meetings. Um, and I think that we would try to approach that as we kind of maybe work through issues of matches and things like that. But I don't think I really knew, I, I don't think I really had those practical tools. And we gave you a lot of different ways to, to figure out how to do you that. You did. You did. I, um. As you think about some of the different kind of strategies or tools, were there um, things that you went to more often than not when you were uh, kind of trying to figure out how to implement this yourself? And then as you built up your team and you were bringing them on board and helping them understand this philosophy, were there resources that mm-hmm. you used to do that? Yeah, there's one in particular, and honestly, we're still using it. I found it to be a really helpful resource, and I know that this is part of that PYD training is that uh, that document, I guess is the best word for it, it's the 40 developmental assets um, that list that, uh, that Search Institute puts out. That's something that we have just continued to go back to. That is something we now give to all of our matches um, and just really talk about how part of the, one of just the primary reasons and means of mentoring is that we want to help develop really good assets in the kids that we work with. And I can even remember this really playing out with one match that I was overseeing kind of early in the project. And this was a family that, and I think I've probably told you about this before, Katie, but one of the most intense family situations I've seen. Um, and uh, and just the kids were going through a lot. They were living with the grandmother, had, had lost one parent to death, and another parent was incarcerated. And I remember the mentor for the youngest child in the program coming to my office just in tears and just saying, Maggie, I just, I want to do something for this family. I don't know how to help them. And I remember 
so vividly that conversation, and it's been a few years now, and I was able to say, well, what do you think are the assets that this family has? I think those words actually came out of my mouth. And I think it was really the first time I kind of saw, like, here's how, we, here's how this looks practically. And from that conversation, I was able to say, you know, the family doesn't really need you to do anything. What this girl needs is a mentor. She needs someone who can spend time with her. But the other reality, too, is this family has such great family support around them. So even though these kids have essentially been left without parents, they have a lot of extended family support. And that's something that as a mentor, I was able to encourage this this female mentor um, just how to utilize that and how to encourage that. Um, and I've seen that in a lot of other family situations. Um, but that was probably probably one of the first times I really saw that and was able just to really practically put that into use. So I think the developmental assets is a really great, I think you're right, it's a great framework to help mentors and really anybody understand a way to take a strengths-based approach. It really helps break down um, both things that are unique and are internal to an individual that are, are working for them and on their behalf, as well as kind of those external factors like family supports that are, are supporting an individual. So I think that's a great strategy to be able to use that to help, um, to help a mentor understand where, where they fit in. Uh, mm-hmm. And so... I wonder, as you as you're able to do that for that mentor and help her to reframe and see the assets that that family had to offer, you know, what was her response to that? How did that did that relationship change in any way, or her relationship with you? Yeah, it's you know, I actually still have a strong relationship with that mentor and the family. Those kids have actually moved, which is a good thing, um, and it's a good thing because they have greater family support, which is that asset we wanted to to kind of focus them in. Um, so I think with that initial conversation, um, I remember that mentor just kind of stopping and kind of pausing and just kind of. I think being filled with sort of new confidence that what she was doing as a mentor, that was really beneficial, that what this family needed was not necessarily for someone to buy them a lot of things or for someone to to go to school for the kids or things like that. And I remember saying to one of the other women on my staff that there's nothing we can do that's going to bring that's going to make this dad not be in jail. And I remember that just being a really almost kind of solemn moment and really kind of somber that like, you know, we, we can't control that. Um, and that's really sad and it, it is hurtful to, you know, it just hurts our hearts because we really, really love these kids and this family. But I think, you know, first starting off with just understanding our own boundaries and our own limits, but then being able to say to this mentor that what you're doing by spending time with this child every week is no small task. Um, it is it is not a small job and it's not insignificant. Um, and I think probably culturally where we are is we want to we wanna fix problems. If we are faced with it, if we are faced with a family that is going through the unthinkable, if we are faced with a seven-year-old who has who will not grow up with her mother, um, we want to do something to fix it. But so often for kids of the incarcerated, as people who are practitioners and helpers, we cannot fix it. Um, and we just... Um, and that, that takes a grieving process. But I think with that, I was able to say to this mentor that your time and your relationship is actually doing more than you think it is. 
um, and being able to not come to this child from saying, you don't have anything and I need to provide it for you, but you have a lot help me see what you do have. Um, and so I think that's kind of the big difference that in that moment, in that conversation, that's the, the spot we were able to help that mentor get to. I think a lot of that comes from, and this doesn't happen in a one-time scenario. This is not the magic of training, although I want to think I'm a great trainer, um, and it doesn't happen in the the best of presentations about our program and what we do. I think it it is about consistently sending messages that, um, number one, our, our kids have lots of promise and potential. Um, I like to say that we are working with children of promise, not children of prisoners, um, that their identity is not in what has happened to them, um, and that uh, there's lots of great things about our kids and that they absolutely have the potential to be leaders and not just in the future, but they can be leaders now. Um, and I think just helping mentors see that and helping point out to our mentors, if maybe they have trouble seeing that, that, that this kid has, um, you know, whether they've got a lot of leadership within them that we've seen, that they have lots of goals and aspirations and things that they want to do, um, or just ways that they want to impact the community. One of the things we also say during training is that we don't want our kids just to be recipients of service. We don't want them just to think, because we have a lot of families who just maybe are under-resourced, so are always thinking about, you know, they might need help with a light bill or, um, you know, there might be an emergency rent situation that comes up. And none of those families ever wants to call me and say that they need help. Um, that is a really hard thing to have to do. But instead of saying, here's what this family is without, here's what this family has, and here's the resiliency that they show. And I think when we do any kind of just sort of informal counseling on the phone with our mentors, being sure to remind those mentors that this kid, you know, if they're calling us because there's a behavior issue or some or a boundary has been crossed, reminding them of those strengths that the child does have and to find ways that that mentor can really point those out instead of maximizing on maybe the deficits that they have. What Maggie just did there in her example was a beautiful way to shift the focus from needs to strengths. And that kind of work, shifting the paradigm, isn't something that comes easily people struggle with it. One of the challenges that programs encountered as they were implementing the approach was that people were really puzzled by a conversation about their strengths and positive qualities. I mean, it isn't typically how people interact with programs. It wasn't how they expected the conversation to go. I mean, really, that's not even how we talk as a society, typically. We talk about what's going wrong, what needs to be fixed, and what could be better. It's a deficit lens that we seem to operate within. I mean, think about the evening news. Rarely is something positive the first conversation if it's covered at all. It can be startling to people to shift from this familiar way of seeing things. I mean, and it takes some practice. People may need to take some time and pause and think about the conversation they're having. Why are we asking them this? And what does it actually mean? Talking about strengths isn't just something that makes us feel warm and fuzzy. For mentoring, we needed to explore what that looked like in practice and how could we be consistent in this practice. We had a chance to talk with Camille, and she shared about how their experience with this project was almost as though it was a journey for them. So Camille, talk to us a little bit about what it looked like for your organization to to take a, a paradigm shift, to look at how you were going to do this work 
differently how you were really going to infuse that strength-based approach. Absolutely. So within our vision of how we even do our mentoring relationships, we do embrace a strengths-based approach. It is a developmental relationship. We believe inherent in every child is the ability to, to succeed. We also know that kids come to us with a wealth of potential and it's our job to you know, ignite it, empower it, defend it. But what we really took a shift for and what we were excited about with this project is finding those nuances and those just those intentional practices that can just guide how we're working with our mentors and our staff and our parents so that the kids just become their best selves and just feel incredibly successful in their journey. And how did that feel for the team to kind of start to look at those nuances? We started from a place of seeing where it already aligned well with the work we were doing. Um, there are definitely the enhancements that are part of our day-to-day -day operations. We are a completely community-based program. So when we think about how the matches and the relationships interact out in the, in the community, doing the social you know, development piece, that was already in line. Um, what we really enjoyed being able to do at a deeper level is how we started the match. Um, the first time the match met, the match introduction enhancement was critical to be able to make sure everybody had the same level of expectations of what we were about to do, um, but really know that the young person is in the center of the work that we are in the relationship we're about to build and trying to get to know them and uncovering their strengths and their passions and um, you know what, what sparks them, what motivates them from the very beginning and using that as the springboard for the rest of the time that relationship is together. Wonderful. When you look at how match support changed and that time that program staff are spending talking and checking in with the mentor as well as with the youth and, and with the family, were there changes or shifts in how you looked at match support? Yes, absolutely. That was one of the exciting factors that we wanted to take a dive into as well. Um, we knew when we were talking with, with the families and particularly with the parent or guardian to the beginning, um, we did notice that there was a little bit of deficit-based thinking in some people from the beginning um, and helping a parent uncover the cool stuff that's going on in a young person's life and, and you know what lights their eyes up and helping them see that. And so pulling that out of the support um, and just really making sure we highlight that working with the mentors in the same context of being able to ask open-ended questions, um, making sure that if they were having boundary struggles within the relationship that we were framing that really well too. Um, but I would really say within the match support, those are the two intentional pieces is just helping the family also have that strengths-based approach and, and making sure we're guiding the mentor along the practices. Uh, were there ways, you know, so you, you changed the way that uh, the questions and the framing around match support and helping folks move along in that process. Did it change anything about the way that you did supervision with your own staff? Yes, definitely. Um, I did notice the way, whether it was inherent in the matches we were putting together, whether it was um, because what how we're cultivating our mentors, I did see a unique shift in the way our staff 
started to take that strengths-based approach and how they viewed the relationships from the very beginning. It was, it was outstanding when I was hearing staff um, say, hey, I think this is going to be a great match. Or, wow, these seem to be really good relationships that our enrollment team is putting together and bringing through. And, and it was hard to kind of drill down as that as a result of them embracing this strengths-based approach to the fullest that they are now seeing it early on. Um, but just the way that they were able to acknowledge the abilities and the mentor and how it aligned early in the, you know, in the interests of the kiddo and what they're passionate about and being able to bring it out that our staff started to say those things very early on. So it was great in the supervision piece to continue to role model a strengths-based approach when we were working with staff so that they did it with mentors and the trickle-down effects and the mentors did it with the youth. It's almost like it was a part of the plan. I love it. I love being able to see it and, and hear it in action. Um, and because and it was something that even Susan and I, you know, as we would talk about how do we want to approach the project and trying to take us to model that strength-based approach and to model, um, you know, what kind of questions do we want to ask to get uh, everyone in this framework? So did you find um, either in your work or from your from the match support staff that there were catalytic questions that came up, those questions that really sparked ideas and energy and, and a strength-based approach? Uh, absolutely. So if there were challenges that were coming up, I mean, trying to always start that supervision conversation with the how might we, and I really stole that from Susan too. Uh, so <laughs> one of the things that I enjoyed about the support that we received along the way is she role modeled it when she would provide support to our team and helping them tell their stories and helping you know uncover the um, nuances that were happening within our mentoring relationship so you know i stole a little bit of it from her when i tried to go in and we were doing our supervision with our staff too so just helping them continue to think and to dream and to I would like to say that our staff definitely had a trauma-informed care approach. You know, that first beginning that you learn about how you work with youth impacted by incarceration and, and, you know, some of the dynamics that they bring into the relationship. You have to be aware of it as a staff person, um, but we always need those gentle reminders, too, um, because it's, it's easy to get down into the weeds of, you know, seeing the challenges, figuring out how we can play a role in helping everybody succeed but still seeing the great work that's already in place and starting there. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So as we think into the nuts and bolts of the project and the, the different enhancements that we did, whether it was ongoing training or the community activities or community service, uh, were there specific enhancements or aspects of those enhancements that came up more often uh, when you would be talking with staff about things that, that were making a difference? The match introduction was a key piece. Um, being able to, again, pull out those, you know, positives from the very beginning and helping the mentor see where their role is. But I would say that early match training was another one that for the for the mentor, excuse me, the early mentor training was a great place for the mentor to learn more about the aspects that kids impacted by incarceration bring into the relationship, but beginning to see how they don't have to be everything to the child as well. The more you teach them about the positive youth development framework, there comes a moment where when you, when you teach them down the line about the role of being a connector and how you want to be able to introduce them to people and places and things out in the community, 
it, you can almost see a sigh of relief on a mentor's face when they say, ah, oh, okay, well, it's my job to help them network. It's my job to help them see the other people. I don't have to be everything to this young person. I don't have to be perfect. I just need to embrace the imperfections as they come. We laugh through it. We learn. Um, we stumble along the way. But if I could just introduce them to the high school band director, if they're really into music and that's not my thing, um, what can I do to connect it? So those moments came up more often than not, um, and we could see themes there where you could just see where a mentor can easily fit into this picture and what they can do. You heard Camille mention developmental relationships. What exactly is a developmental relationship? In his research, June Lei Lee introduces an interesting metaphor to help us understand the crux of it. You know how labels on medications always list a bunch of ingredients and then they pull out that one ingredient, the one that really matters under the caption, active ingredient? In other words, there are all these other things in this pill, but it's really just this one thing that's going to make you feel better. June Lei Lee uses this idea to help us understand the developmental relationship as the active ingredient in programs. That even with all these services and resources, it is that relationship that makes it all work. Relationships are what mentoring is all about, and building developmental relationships that foster growth and development is our goal. This is a bit of an evolution, really. We used to talk about mentoring purely in the context of what it prevents. It can prevent problem behavior, truancy, even substance abuse. Well, that's great, but what can it foster? That's pretty cool, too. Earlier, Abdi talked about the five C's, and Maggie shared about 40 developmental assets. These concepts are the evidence part of evidence-based practice that you hear talked about so much in the youth services field. How do we know it'll work? There are researchers doing this work that suggest that this is true. One of those researchers is Peter Benson, the founder of Search Institute. Dr. Benson and Search Institute developed a list of 40 developmental assets, things to help people understand tangibly what we're talking about here. They broke it out into assets in the community around the child and assets within the child. And then they put the challenge to the communities to focus on developing these assets as our primary goal. Richard Lerner also answers the question around evidence and working to build that base with his work with National 4-H program. He identified five qualities which are known as the five C's today. Lerner found that the youth had better outcomes when these five qualities were in place. He talked about competence, confidence, character, caring, and connection. Lerner also suggested that a sixth C emerges as these qualities develop. That as youth feel more confident in their abilities and have a sense of caring and connection, they will also be interested in contributing to the communities in meaningful ways. Thus pulling out a sixth C, contribution. When we considered this in the context of our experience, such as with youth leadership programming and AmeriCorps, we wanted to push back on this idea. What if these opportunities for contribution were actually another way for these qualities to develop? What if we were intentional about connecting young people to opportunities for contributing in their community? 
What if they already have the skills, talents, and time to make those contributions? What if we were intentional about connecting young people to their communities, to things they may not see, things they may not have the opportunity to experience? Join us next episode as we answer those questions and hear from folks who took the work of connection and contribution to heart and made it work for their youth and their communities. If you want to learn more about some of the tools and strategies we talked about today, make sure to visit our website, youthcollaboratory.org. That's collaboratory, C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitchers or via RSS so you never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate our ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend about it. That would help us out too. Thanks again and see you next time. This podcast is partially supported by grant number 2014-JUFX0004, a grant awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice.